I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Megan Aronson. Uh, welcome, Dean Megan Aronson, to the On Earth podcast series with the Pacific Museum of Earth. Yeah, it's a great honor to have you here today. You are the Dean of Science here at the University of British Columbia. Now, I'm curious, what is your professional background? Where did you go to school and, and what did you study? Well, thank you, Daniel, for the great invitation to uh, come here and uh, and to be able to talk to you today. It's uh, it's uh, it's a real pleasure, and uh, I don't get enough uh, you know opportunities to uh, talk to people such as yourself and uh, the, and uh, and those who uh, might listen to this podcast. Uh, so, I. Uh, I'm a, a condensed matter physicist, uh, and so I did my PhD work at uh, the University of Illinois, um, and my undergraduate work at a small liberal arts college in uh, the United States, uh, Bryn Mawr College. Uh, and so I had a very conventional career path, I would say, at least initially, in that um, I had a postdoc at Los Alamos uh, National Lab, uh, which was during really, I would say, the discovery and heyday of my field. So that was a wonderful experience. And uh, I started as a faculty member at the University of Michigan and uh, just uh, worked my way through the ranks there. Wonderful. And you're a condensed matter f- uh, physicist, right? Yes. What is a condensed matter physicist to you? Uh, I could say that there's really sort of two broad themes in physics. Uh, The one I think that most people are familiar with is what we might call a reductionist theme, uh, which uh, traditionally is uh, breaking matter down into smaller and smaller parts, into atoms, into nuclei, into subnuclear particles, uh, this sort of thing. Uh, And uh, so there's that. Um, But there's uh, another branch of uh, of physics uh, which takes the opposite approach, uh, which is uh, that the the property of multiple, you know, multiple particles or multiple uh, entities is somehow different uh, than uh, the individual particles would be. And so the usual analogy, I think, is that, you know, people have certain characteristics that they have as individuals, but they have different characteristics when they when they are brought together into a crowd. And so it's particularly those uh, new kinds of emergent behaviors that happen, in my case, when you bring electrons together in matter uh, that uh, drive new kinds of uh, collective uh, behavior, like superconductivity, like magnetic order, uh, things like that. And so we're trying to, uh, to uh, find new materials uh, that can um, express new kinds of uh, collective uh, phenomena. That's a great way of explaining it. I never really thought of it as almost materials having personalities or um, expressing their personalities differently. (laughs) How did you get into this branch of physics? Did you always want to be a physicist? Uh, I wouldn't have said so. I went to to university thinking I wanted to be an archaeologist. Uh, And, uh, and, but I took, uh, you know, I I was at a liberal arts uh, uh, college. And so I took, you know, a broad range of courses. And I uh, took a physics course. And I think... I mean, I remember exactly uh, the uh, the lecture, which you know made me think that there was something to it, which was somehow uh, using math to describe a, a physical scenario. And I had no idea what math was for up to that point. Uh, so I thought it was somehow magical that you could use the precision of math to describe a physical phenomenon. Uh, and I think that's what really hooked me uh, initially. 
And, um, you know, then I worked in a lab. I thought that that was fantastic for a variety of reasons. I went to grad school, had a good experience. And, um, you know, so it just uh, sort of, you know, step by step, it, it all kind of worked out. That's great. It's, it's always nice when you can point to that one aha moment, uh, like a single lecture, which changed the course of your life. Spherical harmonics for the math fans out there. Now, you, you've got a very different role today uh, as the uh, head of science here at UBC. How did you go down that path? Well, uh, I, you know, as I mentioned, um, I was at the University of Michigan for many years, and um, uh, I uh, had the opportunity when I was there to uh, to work at some uh, college level uh, uh, committees and uh, to sort of get a better sense of, you know, what the university-wide uh, um, uh, enterprise was like. And I think that that's something that a lot of faculty members really don't have an opportunity to do. But, you know, that did uh, uh, that did lead to a, an associate deanship for me there, uh, which, you know, I found it uh, exciting and interesting, a completely different slice of life. Um, uh, a, a bit later on in my career, um, it was uh, something that I was interested in pursuing, and uh, and so uh, and so I did, uh, and you know so that uh, that sort of brings me up to the present, I guess. That really seems to tie in the the, uh, the theme that you introduced with your research. Um, you know, it's one thing to see a, a scientific discipline in its own stead, but when you put them all together in, in an entire faculty of science, uh, seeing how biology interacts with chemistry or earth sciences. Um, you get some really interesting interactions. You're exactly right. Uh, that's a that's a very good observation. And indeed, I think that this is uh, perhaps the part of my job I enjoy the most, which is, you know, a talking to various people, you know, uh, over the course of my uh, my uh, day to day work and uh, learning about all manner of things that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. But also really seeing the potential uh, in you know bring you know that uh, if uh, those if uh, faculty member over here meets a faculty member over there, you know, they should be the ones having this conversation. Not, they shouldn't talk to me. I'm, I'm not going to do anything different in my research because of a conversation that I would have, uh, you know, uh, with this faculty member. They should talk to, you know, the, the right partner uh, someplace uh, w- uh, within UBC. It's always great to break down those silos. Exactly. Now, I'm curious, uh, have you made any discoveries or any accomplishments that you're really proud of that you'd care to share? Yeah. Uh, I would, you know, I, I would have, you know, I could, I could uh, probably say that there are some specific things, uh, contributions that I've made to, uh, to my field uh, in terms of um, understanding phase transitions, uh, in particular those that happen at zero temperature. I'm very proud of, uh, of those accomplishments, first, because we had to find the right material, you know, a physical object that has the properties uh, of uh, phase transition that happens at zero temperature. Uh, and uh, I think that we had some um, uh, early impact in that field that was uh, that was important that, that I feel uh, quite proud of. But uh, you know, being 30 years into my career at this point, I think you know I'll say the obvious, which is what I'm most proud of is the students that I prepared and what they've gone on and what they've done in their careers. And I feel that that is the that is the most important thing uh, that I've done. And when you say zero temperature, you don't mean zero degrees. I mean, like absolute zero, where there's no heat. That's what I mean. So it makes sense that you moved from Texas up here to Canada, where um, we're a little closer <laughs> to absolute zero some days. Not that kind of zero, the other one. <laughs> now, I'm curious, uh, what are you working on right now, either as a scientist or um, as head of science? 
Um, well, as a scientist, I'm a, a PI in the Stuart Blesson Quantum Matter Institute, uh, and I have a, a, the great pleasure to be part of the Quantum uh, Materials Design Lab uh, there. And uh, so uh, what we're working on right now is uh, to try to understand um, you know, sort of the thermodynamics of those zero temperature phase transitions uh, when you can control them using the concept of topology, which might be familiar to you uh, from, uh, from mathematics. And so it appears that uh, that's an important uh, design principle that nature has used in, um, in, uh, in uh, stabilizing some, uh, some uh, materials. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is to learn how to manipulate the topological character of the materials uh, to see how it changes their functionality. Now I'm curious, you, I guess you don't really have field work in your, um, your field of study, but I do find that um, some of the, the best stories I've heard from some of our scientists are things that don't necessarily have to do with their field uh, or with their research, but just things that happen while they're conducting their research. Do you have any crazy uh, stories from the lab that you'd like to share? Sure. Um, uh, although I would say that we do have uh, a version of field work uh, in uh, in our area because um, uh, uh, in we're not going out into nature and uh, trying to find specimens in that sense, uh, but instead uh, there are research facilities that we use uh, where you can go and you can get x-rays or neutrons or something like this that you can um, scatter from your material and then find out more about what's inside it. And I think you're right uh, that a lot of that camaraderie uh, and uh, sort of, you know, that sense of being apart from everyday life that you get in a field, uh, uh, in field work is, is also part of going someplace and uh, doing an experiment uh, with a with a team of people no question about that but I think this this is something that uh, dates from um, I guess when I was an assistant professor and so uh, we were building up our lab and I had uh, you know two fantastic graduate students at the time very interesting uh, people and especially um, there was a young woman Elaine DeMasi and uh, she was she was incredible because she had a lot of a lot of interest. She was basically interested in in uh, in everything, and I knew that she was, uh, you know, basically had a goal of learning how to play every musical instrument. So I don't know how it was, but I ha I dropped into the lab late one night, you know, to pick something up or, or something, and there's Elaine, and um, you know, she was she's she's just a very tiny little person, uh, and uh, and she was learning to play the bagpipes as one does. So because she didn't have enough lung power, she, we had a compressed gas bottle with a regulator on it. <laughs> and she was using it to provide additional lung power, so to speak, to, to play the, the bagpipes. I have to say that that was uh, something that's always stuck with me. That was a, kind of a, a, an amazing uh, thing. I, I'm not really sure how to respond to that. I think that may be one of the crazier uh, field stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elaine has gone on to have a very distinguished career <laughs> that included running for public office but uh, uh which uh, anyway that didn't work out for her but uh, but she's a great scientist now your research is all about finding uh different ways of, of constructing new materials what are some of the materials or what are some of the uses of your materials uh, so largely the materials that we're interested in um, probably are prototypes for something that would be more useful in the future. You know, for instance, you know, we try to develop new superconducting materials and they potentially could be, you know, if, if we had the right one or we or we understood a new physical principle as a consequence of our work, then that could be used to build uh, something, you know, that would have better technical properties, you know, for use in an, in an application. So... 
there's that, uh, I think, uh, as well, that we're trying to understand, um, you know, the quantum lifetime of materials. That is, if you put them into a certain state, do they stay there uh, or do they sort of decay into something else? Uh, and, uh, of course, the answer is number two, which is, uh, which is both good and bad. Uh, and so I think that potentially the kinds of materials that we're interested in could be used in quantum information applications. That seems to have a, a really um, tight crossover with earth sciences and the, uh, yeah, the conversion of minerals into other, other uh, materials. It's, uh, it's uh, really true. I mean, there's a, there's a material that's very famous in my field uh, as being, uh, well, they, we, we would call it a quantum spin liquid. Um, uh, geologists would call it Herbert Smithite. Uh, so anyway, uh, that uh, nature, you know, uh, does develop some materials that have, uh, you know, desirable properties from the perspective of trying to understand fundamental physics. I'm always curious, you mentioned you, you love mentoring your students, but aside from that, what would be the most exciting part of your work or your favorite part of your work? I, I just like, I have a very synthetic mind. And so I just really like sort of putting together all the pieces from, uh, from the experiment. And, uh, you know, trying to, you know, there, that process where you're just, you know, you, you have a certain amount of data, you try to understand what it's telling you. Maybe you need to take some more, uh, more data. Maybe you need to, you know, talk to a theorist uh, and sort of bit by bit, you develop sort of this picture. And there's just this moment, you know, of clarity where it all sort of comes together for the first time. And, um, you know, that is so satisfying, uh, it, you know, especially when I'm doing it with a, with a student who hasn't had this experience before, because up to that point, it just looks like a lot of disconnected facts, you know. And so you have to have some confidence in, in your experience that you can eventually bring it together. Most of the time you can. But, yeah, that's the best part. Eureka in the math tub, right? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Uh, now I'll turn that around and um, ask, what's the most challenging part of your work? Again, wearing uh, any of the hats that you wear right now. I think, you know, basically all problems can be solved in long enough amount of time. But, you know, things sort of, you know, sort of uh, blow up sometimes. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, then they present themselves as you need to, you need to, uh, you know, figure this out right now. And this is true both of, you know, on the scientific side, uh, uh, and, uh, and also on uh, the administrative side. And it's often around, uh, you know, it's often around um, relationships with people. Uh, and, you know, everybody wants this to turn out in the best possible way. Uh, and, and uh, you know, but people are complex and you're trying to optimize a lot of things and clearly something didn't work out right, you know, to get to that point. So, I think that's sort of the saddest, hardest part, uh, which is to, you know, try to keep the pieces together uh, when they're under that much um, pressure. Yeah, as great as science is, it's uh, easy to forget that it's also con conducted by humans and with all our, our benefits and uh, foibles. Well, the good part of it is very good. <laughs> Speaking of um, some of the foibles of, of people, I'm curious if you uh, belong to any underrepresented communities in the sciences and if you feel like that's impacted your career in any way i would say that it has impacted my career significantly sure i had a lot of advantages uh you know in that my parents were both uh, scientists i've got three sisters they're all scientists you know i went i didn't go i went to an all-women uh, college when i uh, went to college uh, and uh, I can, you know, and I can literally say that all those things made a lot of difference in terms of me not recognizing that there was, uh, you know, any problem with me pursuing whatever it was I wanted to, uh, to uh, pursue. Uh, but I think, uh, in fact, a generation ago, there were, you know, there were 
really significant overt barriers uh, uh, towards uh, women and, uh, and presumably even more so for racialized people. And I can say from my own, pers- you know, from my perspective, uh, you know, today that I hope those barriers are, are less. Uh, I can certainly look at the young uh, women faculty that I work with, and they seem much more empowered than potentially I felt uh, when I was at their at uh, at their stage, uh, and that uh, they demand their rights, and uh, I surely did not feel in a position to do that uh, when I was their age. So let's say that there's progress that has uh, that has uh, been made. It feels like you haven't been dean for um, very long, and yet it seems like you've made uh, diversity and inclusion a hallmark of your um, uh, administration. Well, the seed uh, fell on fertile ground uh, that there's a, a large number of uh, people here who feel really strongly about it. Uh, and I think you're right that that's recognizing that, uh, you know, during my interview uh, made that a, a real positive about uh, about coming here. And then speaking um, again, either in terms of the field of physics or uh, UBC as a whole, do you feel like either community is very welcoming or are they very insular communities? I'm sorry, the communities being physics and the Faculty of Science or just physics? Um, either or, or both. So I would say the Faculty of Science, you know, works hard and, and uh, thinks a lot about, uh, about being welcoming. Uh, and uh, this, I think, ties into your previous comment about our, our, um, our work in the uh, EDI arena. Uh, and I think that in particular with respect to uh, our students, you know, we are really uh, trying to dig in and understand, you know, how different the experiences are and what sort of the next level of success for our students would be. Clearly, completing the program is something that uh, that uh, you know most of our students are very uh, are very uh, effective at uh, but i think we'd like to you know give them even more uh, in terms of uh, what they want out of their educational experience and so that's you know part of i think what we would uh, what we would be aiming to do there i would say that physics is in fact very welcoming uh, and that there is some some truth in terms of the sort of people who would find it most attractive uh, in that, uh, you know, there is a certain way of thinking, uh, of approaching problems, uh, but it's a very broad field. Uh, and I, you know, my observation is that people have an inherent kinds of, of talents. Uh, maybe somebody's really good at, as an abstract, uh, you know, thinker. Maybe somebody's very good with their hands. Uh, maybe somebody's very good at bringing a team of people together to work on a problem. And I think that, you know, there are many different ways of doing physics uh, and and that you can find, uh, you know, the way that makes uh, the most sense, you know, for what you can offer and what your personal strengths are. That really underlines the, the value of having a diverse team, uh, because what is low hanging fruit for one person on a project um, may be something that's incredibly difficult for another person. I'm curious, uh, what kind of background or, or courses would you recommend for students who are planning to follow in your career path? My advice to students always is, is to try to find the thing that really excites you and that you, something that you would like to, you know, spend a substantial part of your life uh, pursuing. And so I think, you know, if you discover what that is very early in your life, fantastic. But I think that uh, many people don't, and they are looking for that experience at, uh, at uh, university. Uh, so I would say, 
take a range of, of different things. I mean, it helps if you could narrow it down to maybe science or maybe the arts or uh, what have you. But if you want to, you know, be a research scientist, I think it really, really helps to be interested in science. In fact, I think that's a requirement. Uh, my experience is that most of the scientific uh, disciplines are linked uh, and, and that it's really useful to have a foundation of at least doing the basic courses in all of those and having a solid math background, uh, that that should prepare you, you know, for a lot. Uh, I also think, though, that for staying power in any career, you really need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to write. You need to be able to express yourself you know, enjoying reading and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, listening to lectures or concerts or, you know, things that are not, uh, in, uh, in science, but, you know, somehow work on your, your, you know, ability to think, you know, these are, these are good things to do, have broad interests, you know, that, that's, uh, my primary, uh, suggestion to you is, you know, don't focus in too much on, I'm only going to study physics. And, you know, by the time I graduate my undergraduate work, I'm actually almost done the coursework for graduate school. What's the point? Yeah, science communication is becoming a much more uh, important field. And, um, and again, like you were saying before, diversity is important, even within ourselves, we need a diverse skill set. It's indeed true that I didn't have any idea at 18 what I was going to need to equip myself, you know, for my uh, my subsequent career. I could not have imagined my subsequent career at that age. But, you know, fortunately, I went to college where I did, and uh, I accept the liberal arts, uh, you know, approach, which is there's basic skills you need to develop in yourself as a thinking person, and they're applicable to a lot of other things. And I'm sure the 18-year-olds who are listening to this who are, feel like they have to plan out their whole lives in one year are um, relieved to hear that they can wait a little bit and just start studying. Some people are very effective at uh, setting out a path for themselves early on, and uh, it's the right path. And, you know, they got an early start on it, and they got further on it as a consequence. So I, there's, there's no one way. One way to help those young people is often to have role models or inspirational figures. So I'm curious, um, as you're going through your studies and your career, have you had any, anyone who's been a big inspiration to you? Well, I had abstract uh, inspiration, I think. You know, it always, you know, the, you know, the major scientific, uh, you know, figures and how, how they just made uh, breakthroughs out of, you know, making the right observations and, you know, through just uh, pure thought, so to speak. Uh, I, I found, uh, you know, a number of those, uh, those were uh, inspirational to me. But uh, in, in reality, I think the people that I worked with uh, and uh, that I came across, you know, over the course of my career, there have been a few of them, I think, that um, really lived their lives uh, in a way that I found inspirational, uh, let us say. Uh, and, uh, and in retrospect, it's not be only because they were great scientists. I mean, they really made a difference in their field, uh, but that they were, you know, for me, it was important that they were also decent human beings and that, you know, they took the whole field and uh, and uh, tried to make uh, contributions to it. Uh, they were generous with their time. Uh, and uh, I think also just, you know, didn't really sort of see the boundaries of uh, the science that they were working on, uh, that uh, it was, it was um, you know, they could just go whichever direction uh, that they wanted to go. So I, I can think of a few people, you know, who, uh, who really taught me that. Yeah, the Faculty of Science is definitely um, not starved for inspirational people. Uh, and great colleagues. I'm curious, uh, looking to the long term, uh, what would you like 
the legacy of your career to be at the end of your career? Or what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone when you retire? Well, I'm planning on having my ashes go over Niagara Falls. Just, you know, <laughs> I'm hoping there's no tombstone. <laughs> but um, I, I really just can't get my head wrapped around uh, that idea. I, you know, I, I think that, uh, as I've mentioned before, you know, probably my time capsule is the students that I've worked with uh, and, um, you know, the, uh, the investment that I've made in, uh, in their careers and, uh, and, uh, and that going forward. With respect to my individual science or my administrative uh, contributions, I doubt that they will, you know, they're not going to stand the, uh, the, uh, the, the test of time. But I think UBC will be different, you know, because I was here, just as UBC is different because you're here. Uh, and so we never have the chance to sort of visit the other, al- uh, the other alternative, which would be if we had neither of us been here, right? Uh, so that's, uh, that's sort of the problem, <laughs> which is, uh, I, I really couldn't say. I guess, yeah, just like uh, with a person, um, our careers are, are measured by the, the people that we impact. I think so. Um, now, looking at, at the, the field, um, and in this sense, I think I'll, I'll focus more on physics. Uh, where do you see the f- field of physics going in the future? And can you make any recommendations for students who are entering the field now uh, so that they can anticipate those changes and uh, be well prepared for them? Well, I think a big change that's happened, you know, maybe over the last 10 to 20 years really is um, computation and its applications in physics. Uh, you know that the theoretical tools are becoming more precise uh, than uh, than uh, what we imagined in the past, and so it seems like experiment and uh, computation and theory are all coming a lot closer together. And that's you know that's actually a pretty uh, a pretty interesting um, confluence, right? Uh, that up to this point we had experiment and theory, and for the most part there was a lot more experiment than there was theory. Uh, and uh, and but there were a few particular theoretical questions, uh, you know, uh, about subatomic structure, let's say, where there were a very limited number of of important experiments that were informing those theory. And so now I think we have a huge richness and diversity of problems that can be uh, attacked by computation and maybe eventually uh, by theory. So I would say that if you're uh, getting into physics these days, that that um, you know you might also consider sort of uh, cross-trading yourself in computer science or math or uh, you know some uh, some field like that, and making sure that uh, you know you're really strong on uh, the computation side. I think that would make a difference. It's funny. Um, our scientists in Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences are saying the exact same thing. Um, that as computation power increases and our knowledge of the world increases. It's just too much information for a person to get through. So you need those computer models. It's true, you know, but, you know, you understand that as an experimentalist, I'm absolutely going to say, you know, that you still need new information to go into that system, right? You know, it can't just be all description of known facts. Uh, So there's always going to be room in experiment uh, just to be an experimentalist to go and find out new things on new systems. Uh, but I think it makes the discussion uh, easier uh, with the theorists and uh, the computational specialists, you know, if you know their language. Uh, and uh, maybe you don't actually do the computations, or maybe you do. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, having a, a real appreciation uh, for what they're trying to do is uh, is probably good. Speaking of uh computational work. I know that a lot of uh, work has had to go online and onto the computers since uh, the COVID pandemic broke out. Uh, So I'm curious, has your work as dean been impacted by COVID-19 and and how has it been impacted? 
well, I, 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 I think I speak for everyone, which is last year, the last year was really not what we had in mind a year ago. Uh, so uh, we, you know, we had to, uh, you know, pivot to, uh, uh, to online teaching almost, uh, you know, over the course of a uh, week. Uh, and uh, that was an amazing effort. Uh, and and uh, the fact that it was sort of done across the entire university by every single one of our teachers, uh, you know, we were trying to support that uh, behind the scenes, but we just did it, and um, that was uh, that was remarkable. We then, you know, had a had a more deliberate approach to the teaching that we've done this year. Uh, but there's a, there's an infinity of work uh, that's behind all of that, you know, to make sure that we have sort of the seamless professionalism uh, in terms of what we offer the students, uh, and um, yeah, that uh, that is, I think, uh, <laughs> that has made a lot of difference in terms of the workflow uh, for uh, for the last year, and it's really consumed everybody. So I think that uh, that's a part of uh, of this that doesn't get spoken about a lot is the price has been paid on the research side. Initially, we had a, a close down. Uh, we closed our labs uh, uh, early on, uh, and I think you know we lost uh, maybe three months of, of of effort just off the top there. And then we had to get things going again. Uh, and this has a you know it's. It has a it has a difficult uh, impact on um, on on the, the faculty members to be sure, but I think it's even rougher on say the postdocs and the graduate students who are, you know, they have much more time sensitive uh, you know situation in that they're looking to complete their PhD, they're looking to you know complete uh, research work so that they can you know finish their postdoc and start looking for a, a permanent job. Uh, and uh, I think that um, you know there have been unexpected and uh, unfortunately uh, impossible delays for those uh, for those uh, people. So, golly, I uh, that's what uh, I I also think of is that uh, you know we took a step back from a lot of our activities over the course of the last year, and um, there's progress that didn't happen because we weren't working on it. Uh, so anyway, I I think that everybody will be very keen uh, to uh, to get back in the lab uh, when uh, when that's possible. I have to say, I've been impressed by uh, the de dedication to safety of students and staff and faculty, um, but also weighting that with the need for, like you said, uh, researchers to get back to their labs um, so they can move on with their lives. Well, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, is there anything you want to say before I let you go? Uh, no, other than I, I appreciate the opportunity and it was, uh, I uh, liked, uh, liked the, the questions, very uh, insightful. And uh, thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.